everyone. You're tuning in to Radical Good with your host, Rada Friedman. In this video podcast, we're going to explore the question, what will it take to get more resources into the hands of women and girls, especially women and girls of color, women and girls who are queer, women and girls with disabilities, or all of the above? How can we be more intersectional and inclusive? I've spent two decades working on gender equality issues all over the world. And the universal truth that I've seen is that when you invest in women and girls, it creates a ripple effect of benefits that spread through her family, through her community, and ultimately through the world. We'll talk with powerhouse women and some male-bodied allies to hear inspiring stories and learn some practical ways that we can use the resources we have at our disposal to advance progress on equality by spending like it matters, giving like it matters, and investing like it matters so we can really narrow the gender wealth gap. I'm talking today with Katie Carter, the CEO of the Pride Foundation. The Pride Foundation was founded in the mid-1980s in the midst of the HIV AIDS crisis. It's a community foundation that stands on the shoulders of generations of leaders who brought the courage to truly see one another, the compassion to recognize our shared humanity, and the conviction to show up every day to protect one another. The Pride Foundation is based in the Pacific Northwest, with staff on the ground in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, and Alaska, forming an interconnected network that has raised and invested over 70 million in LGBTQ communities to ensure that all LGBTQ people are able to live safely and openly as our whole selves in the communities that we call home. In this episode, Katie and I talk about what the HIV AIDS crisis can teach us about the COVID pandemic and how we respond to marginalized communities, the challenge with data gaps that makes the LGBTQ community invisible, and how for many grantees and recipients of scholarship funds, just knowing that someone cares is more important than the money itself. Just a note here, I interviewed Katie for this podcast back in 2020. Like many of you listening, 2020 was a lot. I had some major losses and unfortunately this podcast had to be put on the back burner while I just tried to hold everything together. So when Katie talks about the incredible work of the Pride Foundation, just know that it continues to get more amazing. And I am not the only one that thinks so because they were the recipients of a $3 million gift from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott, allowing them to support local communities even more. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, Share the podcast with your friends, and don't forget to give it a five-star rating and review on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, let's jump into the episode. So thank you so much for joining me, Katie. I'm super excited that we were able to get you here on this video podcast, Radical Good. And um, I'm just so excited because I love the work that the Pride Foundation does. I love you as a leader. I love the two of you combining your superpowers together. <laughs> and um, I think that you just have such valuable knowledge and insight. So thank you so much for joining today. I'm super excited to be here. The, the love is mutual. I'm really excited to be able to talk more about this work that, that I have the privilege of getting to do day in and day out and to learn more about the work that, that you're doing in this podcast which I didn't know was a video podcast. Otherwise, maybe I would have put lipstick on, but you know, that's fine. You know, I think the majority of people will listen to the podcast as most people do, but I really uh -huh. wanted to make sure that it was also um, accessible to people who are hearing impaired or yeah. people who are visual learners who may prefer to watch yes. and read the subtitles underneath. 
That's amazing. Um, or if you're like my partner, Rosa, she reads every episode of anything we watch on TV with the subtitles because she's convinced uh -huh. that everyone has an accent because English isn't her first language. Uh-huh. We do it all with the subtitles so, too, just because it's be sometimes helpful. hard to hear. So that's fantastic. It's great. Yeah. So just to kick this off, I wanted to frame this and say that the, the purpose of doing this podcast is because I, I receive a lot of questions and I have received a lot of questions over my two decade career doing international development work and working with a lot of nonprofit organizations working for social change and social impact. Mm -hmm. People ask me all the time, like, tell me more about the kind of work that you're doing. The stories you're telling are so incredible. The issues seem really complicated though. And I'd love to do more. I'd love to find a way to give back. Even though I'm not in the same career that you're in, I'd love to support it in some way, but it just seems really overwhelming. Like mm -hmm. there are so many organizations out there they all seem great. I don't really know how to choose. And I realized that part of the reason that more people weren't actively giving and supporting and volunteering is because they just felt overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And I realized I have a pretty incredible network of amazing, badass women like you, um, male-bodied allies, everything else um, in my network from all over the world. And I really wanted to be able to lean into that network and introduce people to some of the, the same people that I know who have really great perspectives from doing this work and help people break it down a little bit. What are some of the kinds of things that they may not be aware of um, when you're thinking about doing social change work? What are some of the ways that they can be thinking about the issues to make their own giving more meaningful, whether that's volunteering on a board or whether that's actually writing a check to an organization. So um, I really just wanted to have conversations with people just like you to learn more about these issues. And I'm particularly excited about talking with you because we haven't focused yet in this podcast on looking at issues that disproportionately affect people who identify as LGBTQIA. And um, I'm particularly conscious of the fact that in this coronavirus time that we're living in, inequities are really amplified right now. Mm -hmm. They're That's really exactly magnified. Right. And so I wondered if um, you could share a little bit, first of all, about what the Pride Foundation does, mm -hmm. um, and then also a little bit about how you're thinking about the work. Yeah, and um, thank you so much. There's so much, so much to talk about. Um, so a little bit about Pride Foundation. We are an LGBTQ community foundation. Uh, we're based in um, the Northwest. Our headquarters is in Seattle, but we work in um, Washington, Oregon, Montana, Idaho, and Alaska. And we, the easiest way to describe our work is that we mobilize resources from our community to be able to give back to our community. So we do that through um, awarding grants, we do that through awarding scholarships to um, LGBTQ leaders. And then we do that in a bunch of other ways that are not as easy to talk about as saying grants and scholarships, right? So we have um, 15 staff. We have staff on the ground in each of the states that we're in providing a wide array of different kinds of support to organizations, communities, work that's happening there, making sure that LGBTQ people can be who they are wherever they are. We're really a place-based organization that's trying to make sure that folks don't have to move to big cities in order to feel safe and included as in their, in their homes. And 
that we get to be able to continue to live and thrive and exist in the Northwest. Um, so we were founded in the, in the mid 80s in the midst of the HIV AIDS crisis, right? Where there were a lot of folks who were, were dying, um, you know, which I think we have so much to learn in this moment of coronavirus from the incredibly challenging and difficult experience that so many people um, in the 80s and 90s went through in the midst of, an, of another public health pandemic that didn't get the level of attention that this one is getting, that the whole world didn't stop and shift and try to come up with a vaccine or with a cure or with a way of supporting folks. But that's a little tangent there that I just think we have so much to learn from the LGBTQ folks who lived through that time, right? Um, and so there were a lot of folks um, in the Seattle area who were living with HIV and AIDS um, who were dying and who wanted to make sure that their estates, that their resources, that the, the money that they had raised in their lifetime, had earned in their lifetime, went back to their communities. At the same time, we were seeing a number of LGBTQ serving organizations emerging across the, the region. And so we sort of married those two things together, our founders, you know, set up an endowment and set up a way of making sure that organizations could have a foundation to go to that would that would resource their work at a time when more mainstream foundations were not going to fund a scrappy advocacy organization or organizing organization or HIV and service group, you know. And so Pride Foundation sort of emerged with this constant dual nature of having people with resources be able to have a mechanism to move those resources out to communities across a really wide breadth of geographic area and across a really wide breadth of issues that are impacting LGBTQ folks. And that has grown since the 80s. And so we're in our 35th year this year and we have continued to move um, millions of dollars to LGBTQ groups and students across the Northwest. That's amazing. Yeah. I realized as you were talking um, that I should have asked you to start, but maybe it's more fun to do it in this order. What, what brought you to this work? I mean, I'm so curious about people's journeys and what leads them to do social impact work, right? Because you could be sitting in a cubicle right now, um, working for a corporation, making a lot more money than any of us do when we're trying to do social change work, right? Yeah. So what drew, you, what drew you to this? It's such a, I'm like, how far back do you want me to go? Um, I mean, I think I'll, I'll maybe tell a little anecdote. So one of my first um, engagements that sort of married, like sort of, I don't know that it led me to where I am today, but, you know, looking back with, with hindsight. Um, so when I was in, uh, I was, I don't know, maybe like nine. Um, my, my mother was, um, an incredible activist in her own right. You know, she believed very much in supporting communities and in giving back. We were all raised Catholic, even though that's no longer how we identify. So tithing was in our blood, this idea that you give a chunk of the money that you earn, not as a, not just as philanthropy, but out of social obligation of taking care of one another and sharing the resources that we have. Um, and she worked at the, um, public health department in the small town that I grew up in, in, in Illinois. And she got involved in the first ever AIDS care walk there. And so as a young person, I 
you know, raised money sort of the old is my first fundraising experience, right? Like I went out with the like little paper and people back in that day, you know, you pledged per mile, um, how, you know, however many miles you walked, you would give people a dollar or $2 or whatever. And so that's was my first experience raising money and also like learning about this disease that was ravaging a community at a time when, you know, I was still figuring out my own identity and things like that, which, you know, I don't need to go into on this particular podcast, you know, but that was a big part of who I was. It was about finding community. And I struggled for most of my life with being able to do that, right? Whether it was about, um, sorry, the re reality of working from home during coronavirus since you have little animals who are wanting to come and go. <laughs> so, you know, I think I grew up in a small town in the Midwest and finding community was such an important thing that I was seeking for most of my life. and through a series of other adventures and other career paths, I found myself um, in 2008 in Portland, Oregon, in the middle of the recession, um, having just gotten my dream job running a feminist community center um, that was in danger of closing because of the advent of Amazon. You know, book sales were a big part of how we used to have revenue and this organization was um, in danger of going away. And so I learned how to do fundraising overnight by reading Kim Klein's book, Fundraising for Social Change. And so I'm just like, this is how you do fundraising. I'm gonna teach myself. Um, and I, we raised, you know, I think $50,000 in a couple of months, which for that organization was a massive amount of money. And um, one of the ways in which we did that was through applying for grants. And we applied for a grant from the Pride Foundation for uh, chairs and fans to make one of our most <laughs> popular community events more accessible to people. The event was Dirty Queer, so it was an LGBTQ X-rated open mic night. Um, it was really fun and it. <laughs> it was so cool. I think the grant from Pride Foundation was like $2,700 or something. It was We only asked for exactly what we needed. Like we'd calculated the cost of chairs and how much a fan would cost. And um, they, they gave us the grant. And then I started volunteering and really like fell in love with this organization that was doing this incredible work to support organizations across a much wider breadth of, of communities than I, than I had known or gotten to be a part of. I was new to the Northwest, and so I was really embedded in Portland, but I got to learn about organizations all across Oregon, all across Washington and Alaska um, through the work that they were doing and read the stories of student leaders who were doing these like incredible um, things in their community through the scholarship program and you know the rest is history. I they there was a job opening for the organizer in Oregon, um, a few years later, and I applied for it. And over the course of the past six and a half six years, um, I uh, I um, ended up in a leadership position here at Pride Foundation. So, and yeah, there's just so many things that I love about the work that we're doing, and I think what it really comes down to is it enables me to do both of the things that I love doing, which is supporting communities, finding ways of making sure that the people who need resources and who are doing incredible work have what they need to move things forward and inspiring people to generosity, right? To like remembering like that core value that we all have enough to give and to share and to be a part of 
community together. And that's part of what being in community means is sharing what we have. Mm, I think that's so beautifully said. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, it went back real deep. So. <laughs> no, that's great. I think that people are always really interested in getting to know the real people behind this work, you know, beyond, yeah. beyond what we see on people's websites and what we read about in the newsletters. There are people like you and yeah. me that are actively getting up every day and trying to figure out how do we change systems that are fundamentally, systematically inequitable right. and make them work for everyone, right. you know? Right. Um, it's funny when you were talking about working for that feminist organization in Oregon that was being put out of business by Amazon. I had a flashback to that Portlandia skit and I was thinking, this probably is not what it looks like, but that's what I was picturing. <laughs> so funny story. It is that. <laughs> I love it. It's I love the, it. I think in Portlandia, they called it women and women first. And when I was there, um, it was back when Portlandia was just a, a little skit with Carrie Brownstein on like, you know, it was the little, the little web, skits that they used to do mm -hmm. and um they were like we're gonna shoot this you know show we're making the show called portlandia can we actually shoot it we're in the place that we're spoofing oh my and gosh. so they That's came great. in and, and they did that i think at the time we were like maybe this will help us raise resources and visibility but what it really um did was lots of people used to come in and just take pictures not buy anything not you know participate in any of the activities and just leave but you know Good visibility, and yes, that's exactly the right place <laughs> thinking of. So that's, that's so funny. You're famous in all kinds of ways that <laughs> I did not even expect. <laughs> that's exactly. Yeah. I mean, the show is both true to life and also a little like problematic at times, but you know. Yes, I, I agree with you there. That'll be yes. a different podcast. That's a different one. That's like our cult, you know, sort of a culture podcast. So exactly, exactly. So I would love if you could talk a little bit more about um, maybe how we think about the depth of the work that you do that you do, and how it affects things that we might not naturally think about. So you and I are sort of steeped in this world, um, mm. but I find sometimes when I'm having conversations with people that they don't necessarily make the connections between things like homelessness and queer populations yeah. and when i explain it to them and say you would be amazed like sometimes as much as half of a homeless population i think in seattle it's a little closer to 40 percent are actually made up of lgbtqi individuals yeah. um, can you talk a little bit more about sort of the the intersectional links between some of these issues and why it's so important to invest in them totally um i can't take Credit for the name of this one of my um, brilliant colleagues came up with the name of a workshop they did a couple of years ago it was called um, will and grace effect and it was all about poverty in the lgbtq communities and how invisibilized it is because many of the icons of lgbtq communities are folks like ellen will and grace right like these wealthy white affluent cisgender people who have you know live in beautiful apartments and have like, you know, millions of dollars. And there's the, there's an assumption that, that our community is made up of, of those same kinds of folks, which is, um, which is just simply not the case, right? Like when you actually look at the breadth of the people who, who live um, as part of this, you know, this acronym, right? The, the LGBTQ acronym, like there are, there's a huge breadth of people 
And because of who we are, we are systematically discriminated against in employment, just to sort of like draw some of these lines. So in, I, I'm bad with numbers of like remembering statistics off the top of my head, but a, at least a third to a half of the states in the United States don't have statewide protections to prevent LGBTQ people from legally being discriminated against in employment. So somebody in those states, like in Montana, um, they do not have a statewide non-discrimination ordinance. You can legally fire somebody because you find out that they're gay or they're transgender. You can do it without any question. You can choose not to hire people. We know that even in places where it is illegal to do that, that employment discrimination is very subtle and happens oftentimes in insidious ways where people are perceived as different or there's um, you know, bias on the part of the interviewing team that makes you choose the person who you know is not is not lgbtq identified to work in a particular position so we're seeing more and more lgbtq people who are in service jobs who are facing unemployment who are part of systemic um poverty systems in part too because many youth are kicked out of their homes when they're young they're rejected by their families or they run away because they're in unsafe situations um, at home and end up in the school to prison pipeline, end up living um, outside of stable housing and couch surfing, end up in foster care systems that are often religiously based and don't allow them to actually be safe in those situations. And so situations get um, cyclically um, continued in this way where folks end up in cycles of poverty, which is how you get more LGBTQ people living in homelessness than then we are represented in the population. So when you give a statistic like 40% of, of all youth who are homeless are LGBTQ, which is a huge percentage to begin with. And then when you think about the actual percentage of folks who are LGBTQ identified in the population, which depending on the numbers could be anywhere from like five to 15%, that is a huge disproportionate impact, right? For the, for our, we are disproportionately represented in that statistic in a way that shows that there are all of these systemic ways in which um, housing discrimination happens, in which employment discrimination, in which family rejection, all of these things lead to cycles of poverty that are really hard to be broken. And so I think that's like one example. If you look across almost any social indicator, LGBTQ people and LGBTQ people of color specifically tend to be disproportionately impacted, whether you're talking about housing, whether you're talking about food insecurity, whether you're talking about healthcare access, any of these social indicators are really the places where LGBTQ folks continue to be invisibilized. And part of that invisibilization, that's a word, comes from the fact that in statistics, we're not counted, right? Like when you look at statistics that, that people are um, collecting around food insecurity, around housing, around different kinds of things. We have a very precious few number of, of data sources to draw from to indicate the ways in which our lives are being impacted in these places. So not only are we being impacted in all of these different social indicators, it, we're also being invisibilized and not seen and therefore not targeted from the social service sector to be able to support folks in that. So there's like these layers upon layers upon layers, you know, and we're in the middle of the census right now. And I think it's such an important 
moment to also call out that LGBTQ folks are only counted in the census if you are in a partnership. And even then, you have to be very creative to be able to indicate it. I mean, we were just doing our census form this weekend, which I encourage everyone to do. And it's really hard to be visibly queer in the census, right? It's really hard to indicate that in it. And so like in this huge thing that we know lots of federal dollars get allocated based on, LGBTQ people are not being even considered as a part of that. Mm. I think that's such an important point. And thank you for reminding me to fill out my census form. It's <laughs> very important, even if talking about blood. <laughs> I've been talking about this as well, um, and so many aspects of how the census is going to be impacted this year with coronavirus. Um, but yeah. we already were looking at some of the major challenges around this, including, um, you know, being in an agricultural state like Washington, where mm -hmm. we have so many um, people who are undocumented that are mm -hmm. living here and how we're going to count that kind of yeah. information is incredible. Mm -hmm. But there's something that's, um, you brought up an issue that's so fundamentally missing for most conversations, and that is acknowledging people's existence and identities when thinking about how to collect the data. We yeah. have such huge data gaps around mm -hmm. all kinds of things. We have huge gender data gaps. We have huge um, like LGBTQ identity gaps. We have all kinds of gaps. And so when people are looking at the kind of information to collect, when they don't think about that in the design, it gets right. mixed. And that is how you end up in situations where people say, we don't have any gay employees in my company. Yeah. For example, a few years ago, when I was working with the philanthropist and we were doing some experimental pilot program funding, I was really thrilled when we had the opportunity to fund an organization in Cameroon that was supporting lawyers who could take on clients who were LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. And in so many countries um, in sub-Saharan Africa, fortunately, the legal system in Cameroon is a lot better than in a place like Uganda, um, which was advocating for the death penalty not that long. Yeah. Um, it's just really hard to get resources available so that people know I have a place I can go if I'm facing discrimination. Right. So we gave funds to this organization and when we received our first report from them, they said, well, no one's coming forward. I guess we were wrong and there are no gay people in this country. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. <laughs> not that there was no gay people, but that like, it's not just, you have to do so much additional work to build those trusting relationships. I and mean, this is why you know, a lot of the organizations that Pride Foundation funds are LGBTQ-led and serving organizations that have spent decades building relationships with communities to show that they are safe, they're welcoming, and that they're going to build culturally responsive services where folks know that they can go and be safe and, and access them. And we also fund a lot of organizations who are not LGBTQ specific, but are allied who have continued to build out programming that's LGBTQ focused and have done that over the course of years. It doesn't just happen overnight, right? Like you have to build trusting relationships because it really isn't always safe for folks to access services or know that they are gonna be either physically or emotionally or psychologically harmed if they're going and trying to just get basic healthcare, right? You know, and I think that that happens, it happens in this country, it happens internationally. And it is 
the lack of data, it isn't just about the numbers, right? Like it isn't just like collecting data for data's sake, but it actually is invisibilizing the lived experience of so many people because we just don't see it there. If we're thinking about food insecurity and nobody's collecting data on how it's impacting women differently or single mothers differently or LGBTQ folks differently or different racial groups differently, we're not understand not only the way that those folks are impacted, but also the way that the systems are being set up to have those outcomes, right? It prevents us from building any kind of systemic responses if we're not even understanding the way populations are impacted because we're just like, well, this is, these are who we're coming to access our services and we don't realize that all of the things that led up to that reality are critical. And if you're trying to actually bring about social change, you have to go back to that earlier, more upstream place to be able to actually do systemic change work. And you can't just do it at the outcome place. Yeah, that's such an excellent point. I think that being really conscious about that invisibilization is such an important point, whether you're thinking about people who are at risk of discrimination um, because of race, because of documentation status, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, That's right. because of sexual identity or orientation, um, so it, because they're at risk of gender-based violence or domestic mm -hmm. violence, all of these things would be really important for somebody who's thinking right now about ways to give and wants to make sure that their giving is really impactful. Um, I wonder if you could share a story or an example of something that you saw that became possible when barriers like access to resources were removed, when, when you saw an organization or a group of people get funding. I mean, the chair story was really wonderful, but in addition to that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let me... There's actually, there's a group in Oregon and um, when I first started uh, in, my, in my role there, I was, I did, what do you do? I Googled, you know, LGBTQ organizations in Eugene and, you know, in this sort of like smaller, smaller city, big town kind of um, part in central Oregon. And uh, I found this organization called Transponder. And it was sort of educational and support services for trans folks in Eugene. And I emailed the person who was listed and said, you know, can we get together and talk about, about your work? I would love to learn more about it and tell you about Pride Foundation and see if there, you know, is an option for you all to, um, to partner with us and to receive funding. And I went and met with them and got to know the incredible work that they were doing um, doing educational outreach to uh, companies in the Eugene area, providing support groups to trans folks in Eugene, um, creating you know, different kinds of support networks around healthcare access, all sorts of things that was just, you know, a group of volunteers working together to make this happen who had full-time day jobs and were doing this in their spare time basically because they, they needed it themselves, right? Like they were trans folks who needed these, these support networks themselves. And I just said, you know, this is exactly the kind of work that Pride Foundation would love to would love to fund, and they were sort of like, "Oh, really? Oh, we, like they had been completely cut out from the entire institutional funding world, as many grassroots groups are, right? Like not knowing how to access these resources, not knowing, 
that actually like getting to sit down and meet with somebody who was encouraging them to say like, yes, we want you to apply. Yes, we believe in what you're doing. This is absolutely critical. And Pride Foundation has a really low barrier application system. And I was there to support them in all of the ways that they might need around what they were doing. Um, and they of course received uh, funding because they're doing this like critical work in a community where nothing like that was happening. And we were so excited to support it. And over the years, I've continued to support them. And they're just one example. Like, this is the work that I was saying, like, we do grants and scholarships. And then there's all this other stuff that we do as well that, you know, we do this groups all across the region. But I've been working with them for years, trying to make sure that other funders are able to invest in them and that they get in front of those funders to be able to, to see the critical work that they're doing, even if they can't write the big fancy grant with the logic models and all these different kinds of things because they were all volunteer run and people are like staying up late trying to provide both services for their communities as well as write grants, you know? And over the years, they continued to get some more institutional funding. They hired their first executive director. They have built out a fundraising program so folks in their community are able to continue to support them. And, and they're still around. They're, you know, struggling. Like we get, we've gotten emails from them where they're like, we really, we can't make, you know, payroll this month. Like, is there anything that we can do, anything that you all can do to support us? And I think that this is both like a happy success story and also a like harsh reality story that while um, LGBTQ folks, as we were talking about, are impacted across all of these different social indicators, don't have as many social services set up that are culturally responsive to them. When we look at institutionalized philanthropy are also systematically shut out of funding opportunities, right? So our friends at Funders for LGBTQ Issues who do collect data on our community, specifically funding data on our community, um, have the statistics to share that for every $100 invested by institutional philanthropy, only 28 cents goes to LGBTQ communities. And yeah. so, and so that's not, and that's not 25%. Let me say that again. It's 28 cents to every $100. And so my colleague over there, Christina Wirtz, likes to say, we're here, we're queer, give us a quarter. And it's just not, it doesn't cut it. And so it's like these multiple factors working in tandem of disproportionate impact and systemic underfunding has led us to having this very fragile ecosystem of organizations and networks of support that are being set up to be really like culturally specific to LGBTQ folks that in a moment like right now where we are facing you know huge amounts of crises as a result of the coronavirus the LGBTQ organizations and other and not just LGBTQ but all culturally specific organizations that are underfunded that are like doing the really deep important work in communities are at a, at particular risk of going away and funding gaps just continue to grow wider and wider at these moments right mm. I was just going to ask you but you just said this so perfectly you know, what are some ways that people can be thinking about how they can help right now in light of the, the situation? Um, because I think just like having inequities magnified right now during this time, people too are also looking more for ways that they can help, um, more than they might have already been thinking about it before. Yeah. 
But again, because of the overwhelm issue that I said at the beginning, when people go out there, they start going, oh my gosh, everything just mm -hmm. seems like a mess. I don't know what to do. And often what ends up happening is people, they want to get out of that overwhelmed feeling and they want to hit the easy button. And so people will right. look, what's one thing that my friends are doing? I'm just right. going to do that. I'm going to follow what Bob did. Oh, he's doing a run for, you know, puppies. Great. I'm going to do that. So I really want, to, and there's nothing wrong with that. I love no, puppies. Me love too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But if you're really thinking more deeply about what is the greatest amount of good that I can do right now, recognizing that any gift that is personally meaningful is really important for other ways to think about that. And I just want to stress that meaningfully important part because my partner and I gave a gift to an organization last year and it, it wasn't a huge gift. It wasn't the kind of thing that they would you know, applaud and put our names on a plaque for. It was pretty small, but for us, it was really significant. And the person leading the organization came to me and said, I just want to really acknowledge that I know that that gift was meaningful because I recognize that for a relationship with two women, you're both getting women's salaries. Yeah. And in That's her right. case, she's a Latina. So she's making, you know, I'm making whatever 72 cents on the dollar. Uh-huh. He's making 52 cents on right. the dollar, right? And so that kind of acknowledgement, I thought was so, so, so beautiful. And I think that people don't realize sometimes you don't have to give a ton of money all at once. Maybe mm -hmm. just give a little bit spread out over a period of time, but beyond the actual numbers of dollars that people are receiving, it is also so significant to know that people care and they're doing whatever they can. That yeah. is so meaningful to people. Yeah. So I wonder if, if there's any more that you want to say. I just love to hear your thoughts about how people can be thinking about giving right now during this unprecedented time we're in. Yeah, I can absolutely share about that. One of the statistics around this that is always the thing that encourages me to believe that every gift matters is that the people who make the least proportionally give the most. Yeah. So that is just true across the board that there is a generosity among people who don't have, who give more of what they have proportionally than the richest among us. And, and we know that this is the case, like the entire tax system was set up to not even benefit those folks for their generosity. Right. But that's a different podcast altogether <laughs> that I would love yeah. to participate in someday. And, you know, maybe I can tell a story to sort of drive this point home because Pride Foundation both mobilizes resources, but we also give resources out, right? Like that is what we're set up to do as a foundation. And so we're also like in this moment figuring out how can we make an impact where we don't have billions of dollars, but we do have the money that we have and how can we make an impact with that? Um, and there's lots of organizations that, you know, that I could share with you and that we could talk about um, supporting, but I actually want to tell a story from um, one of our scholars, and we hear this from many scholars um, where we support LGBTQ students, mostly LG LGBTQ students of color who are facing economic barriers to continue their education. And our scholarships are not massive, they're, you know, between three and ten thousand dollars. And what we hear so often is that, yes, the money helps, but what feels incredible is knowing that there's an entire community of people who are rooting for me to, to do this. Oftentimes, 
in a situation where they might not have supportive parents who might not have a support network, that there is a network of literal strangers that they've never met before who care so deeply about their success that they've given resources to make that happen. And um, the very first scholarship celebration that I ever attended for Pride Foundation, one of the speakers got up there and I'll, I still, like six years later, still cry every time I think about this. And she said, this scholarship from Pride Foundation is like the hug I'm never going to get from my mother. Mm. And it just, it touched me so deeply. And A, I knew I was exactly working at the right place, working for the right community to make sure that, that students like Hadi ha continue to have the support that they deserve. But also thinking about our own philanthropy and recognizing that, that giving matters so much that like living a life of recognizing the abundance that we have in these moments is so important to understand and to, to to actually get to that place of social change we don't just need philanthropic institutions and nonprofits all of this we need a cultural mindset shift to go back to one of generosity and sharing to those lessons that we were taught as little kids that like, this is not just your toy, this is a toy that somebody else can have too, right? And being able to recognize that we don't have to own that toy to in order to feel happy in life, that really where our joy and our happiness is gonna come from is from the relationships that we build, from the impact that we have, and that finding the organizations that are doing the work that speaks to your heart, that helps you feel like you're making a difference in the world is really, really critical. And also finding those organizations that are serving communities that are most impacted, who are kept out of other funding sources, that's where you're going to make the biggest impact, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, with my own personal philanthropy and my own personal giving, I always focus on those organizations that are cut out from, you know, that don't have, you know, 17 fundraisers on staff who can go out and cultivate me as the donor, right? Like, I don't care if I get a call back from anybody, but I want to support those organizations who I know who are embedded in community, who are closest to the issues that they're working on and to the people that they're working on and are really doing the work day in and day out to make sure that they're supported. Because I also believe that those organizations shouldn't be all volunteer run. Like the people who are doing that work should be paid for their labor. And I wanna be able to support those organizations to get into a place to be able to do that. And that's my personal values, but that's also a big part of the, the values that Pride Foundation holds too, is making sure that those organizations that are often overlooked, that we seek them out and we find them and we like we did with transponder and eugene right like we look them up on the internet and we go we meet with them we understand and then we you know invest in their work right and not everybody has to do that level of research right like that's why you find the intermediaries like pride foundation that's why you find a couple of organizations that you like and you invest in them over time and you talk to the people like you rada who are close to these organizations and you ask for recommendations say here's what i want to fund what do you think? Who do you know? Who can you connect me with? Two conversations and you could, you know, change the course of an organization with your, with your giving. Yes, exactly. I am so glad I asked you that question because that was really, really incredible. <laughs> and I think just what people need to hear, you know, um, I always like to ask, um, it's a two part question. Okay. One of them is, who is somebody that you really look to for inspiration? It can be more than one person, but especially when things are just really challenging, when you're kind of overwhelmed by it all and you're looking at your, 
your crazy inbox and thinking, I don't know how people do this inbox zero thing. Um, there's just such a huge scale of need. Um, who's somebody that, that gives you a source of inspiration? And then after that, I'll ask you the second. You know, I feel like that I have like two cheesy answers and I don't care that they're cheesy. One is like my mom, right? Like my mom is this single working mother. She's married now, but she was like a single mom in a lot of ways her whole life. She made ends meet and she is the one who gave me this idea of like you show up for your community. You work as hard as you can to make sure that the people in your world, not just your family, but the people who are in your world are taken care of and have everything that they need. Um, and the other one is my partner and he is an incredible in his work every day. I can like hear him laughing in the background right now, but he is a person <laughs> who built an entire organization that is funding black and brown trans grassroots organizers. And he built this organization that is like community led funding and it's incredible. And I think about how that didn't exist 10 years ago and, and he worked every day and he worked in this like loving, compassionate, connected way to community to to be able to change that reality and it has transformed the field of philanthropy he would hate it if i was saying this if you could hear me saying this he'd be so embarrassed but like being able to to step away from my inbox and go have a conversation and remind one another of why we're doing this work of that that this is what love means like this is I think all the time of like the quote like justice is what love looks like in public right like this is what we're working toward and and he is a constant reminder to me of of why we have to show up every day and keep doing this work and why we have to laugh while we're doing it and sometimes we have to stop and take dance breaks with the dog in the kitchen to remind ourselves that like joy is as important as getting to inbox zero and probably more important. <laughs> I totally agree. And I, I love that quote, Michelle Storms, who runs the ACLU here, mm -hmm. making Valentine this year with that quote on it, mm. refrigerator right now. I love, love that. I love that. Thank you for that. Um, the second part of the question is, this show, you know, is all about um, helping to introduce people who are doing incredible work, um, who have really important ways to think about the kind of social change we all want to see and creating the world that we want to live in. So who else do you think that I should interview on this show? Who's another person that you think would be really great to bring on here? Well, let me share a group with you who is like one of the groups and then there, there's sort of a group of volunteers who founded this, it's called the Trans Women of Color Solidarity Network. And they're based here in, um, in the Puget Sound region. And they have this beautiful model of philanthropy that is also one of the things that inspires me, where they raise money and they give it to trans women of color who need money. No questions asked, no strings attached, just trust-based philanthropy at its core. And they are incredible and they are re raising tens of thousands of dollars to make sure that trans women of color who are like when we're talking about disproportionate impact, this is a group of people who've been historically discriminated against, who have been targeted, and who have also literally built the LGBTQ movement that now exists today. Literally like, standing on their shoulders. Literally, and not being given the opportunities that the white cis like groups of people among us are being offered. And that this organization is doing mutual aid. I think before that term even, 
came into into our um, vernacular and I think they they are absolutely they're one of the groups that I personally give to and that I love being able to support because I know that money is helping people directly who need it and are doing it in a way that isn't making it complicated right like they make it so simple I love that. Thank you so much for that yeah. suggestion. I haven't gotten a group before. Um, well, and they're like, they're run as like a collective, right? So they'll get to, they'll determine who's got the time to actually, you know, be able to, to talk on a show, but I would, I would recommend them. So that's amazing. I love it. Katie, thank you so much. This I, is so fun. I know. I wish I could just talk to you all day, but I know that we both have like to go back to work and not just work on our inboxes, but like go out there and try to think about how the world that emerges from coronavirus yes. in the global reset um, is yes. one with a lot more equity than the current system has been divided. That is exactly, exactly, exactly right. And can I share, I read this, let me see if I can find it really fast. I read this quote from Roxane Gay, the brilliant and wonderful Roxane Gay, that I think speaks so much to this and I have a little like sticky note that that describes it but it says most of us are wondering when life will get back to normal but normal is what brought us to such a precarious place nothing should ever be the same again and while that is an unnerving prospect it may also be our saving grace and that is like what I'm using to like guide this like what when we're thinking of the post-corona world thinking of how we want to build the systems differently so that they don't perpetuate all of the inequities that we're now trying to, to solve and respond to in this moment. So, oh, I sorry, interjected that. that quote, but I'm just like, this should be out. It was such a beautiful article and I just, it, it resonates so strong in this moment. No, that's so perfect because, you know, we're also right in the midst of spring mm -hmm. right now and there's something so regenerative about the energy and the fact that this is happening right now. And I yeah. think so often about, um, there's a quote about how if you look at a seed, when you plant it, you would think that if you could see inside it, it was completely being destroyed. But in mm. fact, the old parts have to fall off and fall apart for the new stronger growth mm. to occur. And oh my God, that's beautiful. That so much during this time, like this is a spring renewal for the planet. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So let's cultivate it and make it grow, right? Exactly. Well, thank you so much. Thank I really thank you. I'm going to link information about the Pride Foundation and about the Trans Women of Color Solidarity Network and others in the show notes so that if anybody wants to learn more, they can easily find you. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Rod. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. And this was so fun. Yes, I agree. Okay. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If today's conversation piqued your curiosity, please comment below, review and share it with your friends and colleagues, and let me know your suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear from. Also, follow me on social media, the links will be in the show notes, and be sure to sign up for my newsletter on my website at www.radafriedman.org. If you wanna be inspired, think big, and take action to advance gender equality, then subscribe to this podcast to hear more inspiring stories and tips on how we can close the gender wealth gap. Thanks for listening.